1: It is January, and that could only mean one thing. Learn how to eat all the foods you love, even cookies, brownies, and desserts, and still lose weight. It's the time of year when everyone is being encouraged to get into shape and shed some pounds. Both men and women feel the pressure of the New Year's resolution push, but ads are often aimed a little more squarely at women. Okay, you ready? Yes! Now, <gasps> a Peloton? This dynamic goes back decades.
2: Figurines
3: do a lady proud. They're the diet lunch that you can crunch out loud. Figurines crunch, 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 crunch. They're the most unquiet kind of diet lunch.
1: Ads like these, social media images and glossy magazines are often criticised for putting pressure on women to look a certain way. But the forces that encourage women to lose weight may be more powerful than just images or ads.
4: Women who are 25 pounds overweight make $16,000 a year less than a woman of average weight. A man who weighs 25 pounds uh, more than the average man earns $8,000 more. Nice, right?
1: You're listening to Money Talks from The Economist, our weekly podcast on the markets, the economy and the world of business. In Washington, D.C., I'm Alice Forward. In Seoul, I'm Tom Lee Devlin. And in today's show, the economics of thinness.
2: First, we will examine how weight can interact with women's wages.
0: Does weight actually lower wages for women? Or is the explanation due to sort of unobserved characteristics that may differ between people with and without obesity?
1: Then, we will dive into the ways women might respond to these economic incentives. The book
3: was a how-to on How to be just like me, how to be Helen Gurley Brown, how to be thin, most
2: important. And finally, we'll ask what the legalities of weight-based discrimination are.
4: It's perfectly legal for an employer to discriminate against somebody on the basis of their weight. To figure out why economic
1: incentives for thinness might exist and what their impact is. Tom, hello. It's your uh, first episode on the show and Mike, our co-host, hasn't even bothered to show up to welcome you.
2: Delighted to be here, Alice. And to be fair to Mike, he is off enjoying a a very hard-earned break. I'm actually on the move myself this week, though sadly not on holiday. I'm on the line here from chilly Seoul in Korea, where it is minus eight degrees Celsius today.
1: Gosh, that's absolutely freezing. It's been unseasonably warm in Washington. It's sort of more like summer at the moment. So that sounds really, really bitter. What are you doing in Seoul? I'm here researching
2: a a story on automation, actually. So Korea is a a country that's been particularly enthusiastic about adopting robots. Uh, Just today, I had a coffee made for me by a robotic arm and was given directions by a strange sort of semi-humanoid robot on wheels. So it hasn't disappointed so far. But today, we're going to discuss a story that you wrote, Alice, about the relationship between women's weight and their wages.
1: That is right. And a quick heads up that this episode is going to explicitly discuss weight and weight loss, uh, which might not be something everyone will find it easy to listen to. So if that applies to you, you might want to skip this week. Indeed.
2: Indeed. And Alice, this is a topic that's not exactly on your normal beat. So what made you want to write about it?
1: Yes, my usual remit is banking and and finance. So this is a little further from that territory. But the reason I first got interested in this subject is because I read a few things that framed women's weight and the way they look in a sort of more economic context. So one was when I moved to New York in 2019, I read the Tom Wolfe book, Bonfire of the Vanities. And in it, he describes these sort of fabulously rich women on the Upper East Side as social x-rays, because they're unbelievably thin. Another was an essay that I read by Gia Tolentino, the New Yorker writer called Always Be Optimizing, in which she describes going to and see exercise classes like bar classes as, you know, women essentially sort of making an investment in the way that they look, that they kind of expect to pay dividends. And another was the book by the sort of famous editor of Cosmopolitan magazine, Helen Gurley Brown, which we will come back to later in the show. And all three of these pieces of writing got me thinking about weight in, in that sort of economic way. But what actually sort of convinced me that I should write about it was a chart that one of my colleagues showed me.
2: Uh, Yes, well, we certainly do love a good chart at The Economist. And, And what did this one show, Alice?
1: So this chart was for America, and it showed that there is an inverse relationship between weight and income in general. So the richer people are, the thinner they tend to be, at least on average. And what was really fascinating was that if you broke that population level line out into men and women the line for women sloped very sharply downwards, but it was actually kind of flat for men. So this entire population level dynamic is being driven entirely by women. So rich women are much, much thinner than poorer ones, but rich men are about as likely to be thin or fat as their poorer counterparts. Right. And so in this analysis, how did they define that? So the way weight is often sort of examined or measured is using the body mass index. And this uses a sort of mathematical relationship between someone's height and their weight, and it spits out a number that is typically between about 18 and uh, 35-ish. Academics, doctors, scientists, they bracket people using those numbers into sort of four main categories. So underweight, if your BMI is below 18 in the so-called normal range, if it's between 18 and 25, overweight, if your BMI is above 25, and obese, if it's above 30. And the specific chart that I was looking at was looking at the share of people in each income category, what share of them were obese. And in America, the specific numbers were that 45% of women in the bottom third of the income distribution were obese, and just 30% in the top third are. So that line, if you picture it, would slope pretty sharply downwards. But for men, about a third of them in the lowest income category were obese, and about a third in the highest as well. So that line was almost completely flat. Right. And is this
2: just in America where this relationship holds, or did you look at this in, in other countries as well?
1: No. So one of the things that was really interesting is that this relationship seems to hold across basically the entire sort of rich or developed world. So in France, for instance, a fifth of women in the poorest 20% of the population are obese, but only 8% of those in the top richest 20% are. For men, it's about 13% and 11 The dynamic is the same in richer parts of Asia as well. So in Korea, uh, where you are now... of women in the bottom quartile for income are obese, and just 22% of those in the top quartile are. And rich men are actually a lot more likely to be obese or overweight than poor ones. So 28% of poor men in Korea are obese, and 40% of rich men are.
2: Got it. And, And what do you think's going on here? Why does this relationship only hold for women?
1: That is a great question. One of the reasons that I found this topic so fascinating is that I've basically often heard it argued that poverty is an explanation for obesity, that, you know, it's difficult to eat well or find time to work out or do any of those kinds of healthy behaviours for poorer people. And I'm not saying that those explanations aren't correct, but it feels much harder to make the argument in general that sort of obesity is explained by poverty because you'd think that those arguments would apply to both men and women and not just to women But to help me think through some of this and sort of try to come up with some explanations, I spoke with John Corley, who is a health economist at Cornell. John, hello. Welcome to Money Talks.
0: Thanks for having me.
1: You wrote an often cited paper that examined the link between obesity and wages, and in particular, whether there were sort of wage penalties for overweight or obese people. Could you explain at a high level what your findings were?
0: Sure. So in general, it is true that among women, heavier women tend to earn less. Among men, it's a much more ambiguous relationship. And so the point of the paper that I wrote was to examine whether that's really causal. So in other words, does weight actually lower wages for women? Or is the explanation due to sort of unobserved characteristics that may differ between people with and without obesity? Or could it be reverse causality where being in poverty could make you gain weight? And so the paper used the method of instrumental variables, taking advantage of the natural experiment of the heritability of weight. So there's a genetic component to weight, and the conclusion of the paper was that weight lowers wages, but only for white females, not or black or Hispanic females, and not for any group of men.
1: Could you explain why you think that is? You know, why is it that weight lowers income for white females in particular?
0: Yeah. So I mean, it's really tricky because any good explanation you would have would seem to apply to other groups than white females alone. So for example, we know that fat cells collectively are an endocrine organ. So they secrete hormones that can damage our health. And so it could be the case that being heavier impairs your health It leads to absences from work. And in other work, we have found that obesity doubles the number of work days that people miss for health reasons. But one complication to that being the correct explanation is that wages start dropping with weight at a relatively low body mass index. So, in other words, you don't see a relationship that would be consistent with health being the explanation. In other words, like even when people are still quite healthy in terms of weight, their wages are dropping as they get heavier. And so it doesn't seem like physical weight is all the explanation. One other explanation that people have considered is bias. It just may be the case that there's a taste for discrimination, as Gary Becker called it. And some evidence consistent with this is that there was a researcher in Scandinavia who sent uh, fictitious job applications to real job openings and manipulated the picture that accompanied the application. So this was in Sweden and in Sweden, it's actually typical apparently to include a photograph when you apply for a job. And so this person digitally manipulated what the photographs looked like and found that the heavier versions of people's photos lowered the probability that they got a callback for an initial job interview. And so it does seem like employers may have just kind of a taste for discrimination or, you know, may judge people based on their appearance. But then the question would be, you know, why is it limited to white females? Why is it not applied to men or other groups of women? There have been some sociological studies that have found that the self-esteem of white females is more affected by weight than black or Hispanic females. That may be part of the explanation as well.
1: And in the context of what you've described on potential sort of obesity wage gaps, you know, it seems like one reason why this might be is that being thin really does help women to become richer. Do you think that's the right way to think about that?
0: So I think it really depends on whether the explanation is related to health, physical or mental health, or whether it's related to bias. You know, you wouldn't want to make it seem like it's incumbent on women to respond to bias by accommodating it or changing their behavior to meet societal expectations that are not otherwise in their interest. So I think it matters in that regard. I think another possible explanation for why there's this gender difference in weight and wages is that. Typically, these studies use a measure of weight or fatness called body mass index, which actually doesn't measure how fat you are. A body mass index is just what is your weight for your height? And so it is a very noisy measure of fatness because people can be muscular, right? So there's multiple reasons that your BMI can change.
1: Obviously, you know, the prevalence of obesity has risen significantly since sort of around the 1980s. And the paper that is often cited, uh, your paper on this is almost a a couple decades old now. So what is your perception of how these penalties might have changed over time?
0: You know, it's kind of interesting because the prevalence of obesity has risen so much in so many countries of the world. And so here in the US now, it's 41.9% of American adults are clinically obese. And so you might think that if the prevalence of obesity has doubled and the prevalence of extreme obesity has way more than doubled, that maybe obesity has just become more societally accepted, right? And if it was originally due to bias, maybe that bias has decreased. And so there has been some work on this. You know, it's very hard to get large samples over time that have great data. But for example, uh, David Lempert has a working paper from the Bureau of Labor Statistics, which concluded that the penalty has not gone down over time and may actually have increased. A challenge of that is that the data set that they use, it's not just time passing, but also the samples getting older. And so it's not clear if it's really like an age effect or a time effect. But there isn't unfortunately evidence that this relationship is decreasing or certainly not gone away over the time that obesity has been rising so much.
1: John, thank you so much for joining the show. It was a real pleasure having you.
0: Thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it.
1: So Alice, it sounds like
2: economists have found some pretty startling evidence here that women who are less thin are paid less. And it's hard not to draw the conclusion that there's some kind of weight based discrimination going on here.
1: Yeah, exactly. And, you know, it does seem reasonable to try and eliminate all other possible explanations for why this gap might exist before just jumping to it being sort of taste-based bias or, or discrimination. But in addition to the evidence that we have from economists, I did want to look at some evidence about how women themselves think about their prospects in the workplace or life in relation to their weight or appearance. And I immediately thought of Helen Gurley-Brown, who I mentioned before, who is the editor of Cosmopolitan magazine. She was hugely influential and successful and wealthy, and she was also very outspoken about what she ate, dieting, and her sort of ideal weight. So shall we hear from Helen? Let's do it. provocation rarely ages well. Those who succeeded it make it difficult to appreciate how radical they were in their time. There are few women this sentiment applies to more than Helen Gurley Brown, the woman who transformed Cosmopolitan from a stuffy publication destined to be cancelled into the single best-selling newsstand magazine. Before she took the reins at Cosmo, which she edited for 30 years from 1965, she published her first book, Sex and the Single Girl, it caused quite the stir. The Hearst Corporation, the publisher of Cosmo, aired a documentary about Miss Gurley Brown in 2009, which included a clip of her being interviewed about the book in 1967. Just to show you I'm not nitpicking with this lady, listen to some advice she gives in this book, Outrageous Opinions. She's talking now to a lonesome female. I don't know whether I can... Well, I'll try. She says one way to spend a Saturday night alone is to put on some records, jazz, classical, or cha-cha-cha, pulled down the shades, and danced naked for a couple of hours.
3: What is so outrageous about that?
1: Helen, they're going to send you to the funny farm. It sold two million copies in three weeks. Miss Gurley Brown was not a woman who shied away from speaking plainly about what she believed. And she held many deep-seated convictions about what women needed to do in order to get ahead including about being thin. That drew the attention of many, including Laura Shapiro, a culinary historian who wrote What She Ate, a book about the diets of famous women throughout history. A few years ago, Ms. Shapiro spoke to Paul Solman on PBS News.
3: It all started with her 1962 mega-seller Sex and the Single Girl. The book was a how-to on how to be just like me, how to be Helen Gurley Brown, how to be thin, most important.
1: In Miss Gurley Brown's second book, Having It All, published in 1982, she argued that looking a certain way was a prerequisite for success in life. In the chapter on diet, she wrote, The most basic thing to get on with after your job, or during it, is how you look and feel. It is unthinkable that a woman bent on having it all would want to be fat or even plump. She advised women to weigh themselves daily, wrote that they should... Accept once and for all that dieting is hell and stop getting depressed about it. This advice made it into her magazine, as well as her books, as Miss Shapiro described on PBS.
3: Cosmopolitan was full of food stories, and they were two kinds. Here's a classy little buffet dinner you can make for your friends, and it would be a bunch of... Recipes not that different from what you'd find in any other magazine. Then there would be dieting stories, each more crazed than the last, and all of them packed with diet pills and chemical sweeteners. She once said, I think maybe you have to have a little touch of anorexia to be really beautiful. With that one word just tossed off somewhere, she has probably done as much damage as uh, you know, the whole Hollywood modeling,
1: dieting industries put together. Mad diet advice was commonplace in the 70s and 80s. But what distinguishes Miss Gurley Brown's from the rest is that she's framing it as economic advice, thinness as one of the building blocks for success. Miss Gurley Brown died in 2012 at the age of 90, leaving behind a complex legacy Her radicalism was undoubtedly a powerful force in the push for women's liberation. But her advice on how women should diet may have perpetuated the beauty standards women are expected to measure up to, and the economic returns they may derive from doing so. But Miss Gurley Brown, as one might expect, was unequivocal about thinking that she was a champion for women. In 1996, she was interviewed by CNN.
3: Are you a feminist? I am a devout feminist. You can be sexual, you can love sex, you can be a sex object, heaven help you if you aren't. That's when you're in trouble. And you can still be a feminist because feminism has to do with wanting the best for both sexes.
2: Okay, wow. Uh, So Helen Gurley Brown, clearly incredibly influential in her day and age in terms of shaping how people thought about this issue Alice, how do you think things have shifted in the past few decades?
1: Yeah, I mean, things have changed pretty radically since the 60s when she wrote her first book or or the 80s when she wrote Having It All. And even since she died uh, in 2012, there are much more robust body positivity movements uh, or fat acceptance movements. And if you read Cosmo today, you could find many more articles about loving your body than you will sort of mad diets that consist of existing solely on eggs and wine, which was uh, one of the nuttier ones she espoused. But look, Helen Gurley Brown is just one woman, although she'd have a lot of influence over the readers of Cosmo magazine. But the reason I find her interesting and thought it was worthwhile including her is that she perceived her own thinness as a sort of clear economic advantage. And it is a little difficult to sort of read or or listen to what she wrote or said, because I think the sort of potential existence of these economic incentives for women or, or the penalties they might face for sort of not Being thin are kind of tragic. They're tragic for women who may be discriminated against on the basis of being overweight. They are tragic for women who sort of feel this economic pressure to be thin and arrange their eating habits and lives accordingly. That was where I ended my piece on this, which is a little glum, but After the break, we are going to hear from a legal expert who's done some fascinating research on the different jobs women of different weights tend to do, and she is going to help us think through at least one potential solution.
2: But first, we want to ask you to take out a subscription to The Economist.
1: It will give you access to my colleagues' excellent reporting on the rampant outbreak of COVID in China and the chaos going on in the still speakerless House of Representatives in America.
2: Listeners can get a great introductory offer at economist.com slash podcast offer.
1: And if you're already a subscriber, thank you. You should check out our newsletters like Money Talks and The Bottom Line. They're at economist.com slash newsletters.
2: And as usual, all of those links are in the notes to this episode.
1: Before the break, we heard how women's weight affects how much they earn. And we heard from Helen Gurley-Brown on her perception of needing to be thin to get ahead in life. To understand more and what can be done about it, I spoke to Jennifer Schinnell, a law professor at Vanderbilt University. Hello, Jennifer. Welcome to Money Talks.
4: Thank you so much for having me.
1: To start with, could you just set out the magnitude of the wage penalty you think overweight women or obese women might face?
4: So if we think about white women versus white men who are sort of our baseline population, what happens with women is starting when they become classified as overweight, we start to see the obesity wage penalty show up. So my study from several years ago suggests that this is somewhere along the lines of 5 or 6%. Once a woman moves up into the next BMI category which is obesity, that obesity wage penalty doubles to around 10 to 12%. And then once a woman moves up to the morbidly obese category or the severely obese category, which is a BMI of 40 or more, it goes up closer to 18 or 20%. So this is a huge, huge penalty. In contrast for men, we actually see that overweight men, if anything, are rewarded in the labor market. There's absolutely no evidence of a weight penalty for overweight men. There's not much evidence of a weight penalty for men who are in the obese category that is a BMI of 30 to 40. We only start to see that obesity wage penalty crop up for men who reach the morbid or severely obese level of 40 or more BMI. But even then, it's a third of what women's is. And this even goes beyond the labor market. There is also a series of economics research in the United States that suggests that women who are thin marry more successful men. So not only are they themselves more successful in the labor market, but they end up marrying men who are also more successful in the labor market. And it completely supports this often unhealthy push that we see in society for women to be as thin as possible.
1: And in that research, you found that the sort of occupational differences varied for men and women, right?
4: Yes, that's absolutely true. So women who are classified as obese and particularly severely obese are very unlikely to secure jobs that require interaction with the public or interaction with clients. And the reason that this becomes particularly important for the obesity wage penalty is that jobs that require interaction with the public are typically higher-paying jobs. On the flip side, jobs that require heavy physical labor are walking, lifting, hard work jobs, what we would call blue-collar jobs, those are typically lower-paying. So that contributes to the obesity wage penalty that we see is just the fact that people, and particularly women with obesity, it seems that they are confined into the lowest paying jobs into the economy.
1: And you're a lawyer by training. And we often think about discrimination on the basis of protected characteristics like race, sex, sexual orientation, age, etc. What is the legality of discrimination on the basis of obesity or, or weight?
4: So in the United States, at least at the federal level, Weight is not a protected characteristic. So it's perfectly legal for an employer to discriminate against somebody on the basis of their weight. Now, there are two possible routes that somebody who believes that they have been discriminated against on the basis of weight could pursue legally, at least under federal law. So to the extent that an employer discriminates only against women who are obese or women who are overweight, that has implications under Title VII of the 1964 Civil Rights Act. That's something called sex plus weight discrimination, which is illegal because the employer is essentially treating weight in women differently than the employer treats weight in men. We have seen women successfully prove that particularly in the airline context as late as the early 1990s many airlines in the United States maintained weight policies for flight attendants that were different for women than for men and because there were these explicitly discriminatory policies on the books female flight attendants brought a successful series of lawsuits against the airlines challenging these discriminatory weight policies In the 70s 80s and 90s i think the problem is today is that very few employers have explicit policies on the books that treat weight differently in women than they do in men but if you look at the labor market data it is clear that many employers are still doing this it's just implicit and from a legal perspective that becomes an evidentiary problem for women
1: Can I just ask about why you think it is that obesity is not a protected characteristic? People have this perception that it's kind of mutable. So maybe if you work out a lot or eat less, you can sort of rid yourself of it. Is that why it's not a protected characteristic or do you think it should be?
4: Yes. So I think you've hit the nail on the head with the term mutable. So traditionally, the protected categories in the United States are viewed as quote unquote immutable characteristics, things like race, color, Sex, national origin, and then it gets a little bit tricky with things like religion. Right? We can't control the religion that we're born into, but religion is arguably mutable. This idea, I think, is driving a lot of this: is the idea that you can change your weight at any time and you can control your weight at any time. After all, that is what the multi-billion-dollar diet industry is based on: this idea that you have complete control over your weight. And the science is not so clear on this, particularly with respect to long-term sustained weight loss. And yet the everyday public continues to have this strong perception that you can lose weight at any time if you just work hard enough and have the will.
1: Jennifer, thank you so much for joining Money Talks.
4: Thank you so much for having me.
1: So, Tom... Firstly, are you surprised by uh, what we've been talking about today?
2: Well, I think the correlation between obesity and and income level is something that has been documented for a while. uh, But I suspect, like most people, I'd always assume that the causal relationship went from income to obesity with lower income families, more likely to rely on processed foods, for example. Uh, But for me, it was really striking to hear how the relationship between weight and income is far stronger for women than it is for men. And I think that does suggest that the causation, at least in part, flows from weight level to income rather than the other way around.
1: Yeah, I agree. Before I looked into this, I also assumed that the relationship probably ran from income to weight rather than weight to income. What do you think this might mean for women? Well,
2: I think the research we've explored does point to a somewhat disturbing conclusion that that women are discriminated against in the workplace on the basis of their weight in a way that men just really aren't. The fact that women have to contend with particularly unrealistic expectations around their appearance is... In itself not new, and and the toll this takes on self-esteem and mental health is something that's been discussed for a number of years now, but what was really new for me in in this research is the way these expectations also carry across into the economic realm for women. Uh, What about you, Alice? What were your big takeaways from this story?
1: Yeah, obviously, I've been thinking about this for a long time. One of the things that I still find sort of fascinating is this sort of chicken and egg nature of the discussion. So, you know, maybe there are some societal expectations about the way women should look or, you know, what they should weigh. And those drive this sort of economic incentive. And then maybe that loops back around and perpetuates the stereotypes and ideals even more. So I find it sort of quite difficult to untangle all where this begins, but I do find it sort of endlessly fascinating. But one new perspective I have read since uh, writing that article is a letter I received from a reader, Mara Winnick, who is a professor at the University of Redlands. She wrote, Women who were committed to maintaining the perfect slim hourglass figure over the last many decades are now of an age to have osteoporosis. We are learning that a lifetime of exercise and disciplined eating, low to no fat, no pizza, rarely consuming ice cream or desserts, Has contributed to weak bones. Our once attitude of superiority is fading quickly as we must face this shocking reality. We thought thin was healthy, beautiful, powerful. Thin gave us control socially and politically. Now we are in our 60s and have the bone health of an 80 to 90 year old. We could have eaten the pizza. And I can't think of a better note to end the episode on than that one. Uh, So, shall we turn to our stats of the week? Yes, let's.
2: So, my first stat as a Money Talks host comes from this week's job openings and labor turnover survey from the US, which showed that America still has 1.7 job openings for every unemployed person in the country. And that really just shows how tight the country's labor market continues to be despite the efforts by the Federal Reserve to cool the economy.
1: Yeah, I mean, this will remain the single most important story of the year, sort of whether the Fed has tightened enough. And that stat, I guess, suggests that maybe they haven't quite done enough yet. My stat of the week this week is 133, which is the number of rounds of voting they had to do to pick a Speaker of the House of Representatives in 1855. As we record on Thursday, they are a couple days in and six rounds in, uh, and they still haven't found one. But uh, that process took almost two months in 1855. Hopefully we don't have a sort of similar, another two months of this nonsense to live through again.
2: Yes, it's certainly been bewildering to watch this play out from afar and I certainly hope we've learned something since uh, 1855.
1: Yes, exactly. And with that, our thanks this week go to Jennifer Shinnell and John Corley.
2: And thank you for listening to Money Talks. Don't forget to rate and review us wherever you get your
1: podcasts. And you can always write to us at podcasts at economist.com.
2: Today's show was produced by Dan Asher.
1: Our sound engineer is Weidong Lin. And the
2: executive producer is Hannah Marino. I'm Alice Fulwood. I'm Tom Lee Devlin.
1: And this is The Economist.